Joan of Arc, Helen of Troy, Catherine of Aragon, Tallulah of Banquet. You name them, they've got nothing on Susie of Green, that is Susie Green, whom hell hath no fury and who certainly doesn't get as many laughs. Susie Green, perhaps the most electrically charged character on Curb Your Enthusiasm, and the wife of Larry's friend and manager, Jeff Green, is a bombastically profane and outrageous liberated woman. Self-liberated, that is, played by the supremely formidable actress comic, Susie Essman. Now, Susie may be one of the most paradoxical television characters ever. Impetuous, explosive, and yet sensitive and soft-hearted where her daughter is concerned. She doesn't take anyone's crap, but generously doles out her own. Her wardrobe somehow puts an exclamation point on all of this. You wouldn't want to get into a shoddy match with her because you would surely lose, whether in terms of volume or passion. And yet, despite her many flaws, you can't help but love her. She's a treasure, too assertive ever to be buried, and both actress and character make most other forces of nature look like wimps. Susie Green is a cockeyed or cock-something wonder. Susie I knew from New York, but I hadn't really thought about her as Jeff's wife until I watched a Friars roast. They were roasting Jerry Stiller, and she got up, and she was filthy. I'm very hoarse tonight. I have to apologize. I have a sore throat. Jerry knows why. I know why. Enough said. (laughs) It wasn't pretty. I'd never really heard her like that. And uh, I knew that she would be just wife. You know, the interesting thing about when I think about Susie Green and God, I've been playing her for, what, 17 years now, right? Right. Larry and I have never in all this time had a discussion about the character. (laughs) We've never had a discussion about her. He wrote the part. The reason he cast me is he had this scene in season one called The Wire, where a fresh air front kid comes to... Jeff's house and robs them blind. You know, Jeff brings the kid in. It's a good deed. And the kid robs him blind. And Jeff's wife then goes crazy on him. So that was the scene he had in mind when he hired me. And I've known Larry since, oh, I don't know, 1986. You know, he knows my stand-up. And he saw me on the Jerry Stiller Friars roast that was on Comedy Central. You know, it's a roast. I was completely filthy. That's what you're supposed to be on a roast. Well, but you're so cute and adorable, and I just just find it hard to say all those kinds of mean, sexual things about you. But then I look at this dais, and I think, these other miserable suckers I could have a field day with. So it was like ding, ding, ding moment for him where he thought, oh, Susie would be perfect for this part. And he called me, and he gave me the part. And the only direction he gave to me was, I want you to rip Jeff a new asshole. And I thought, well, I've had boyfriends. I could do that, you know. (laughs) I've been in relationships before. I have experience with this. So in that scene, I was cursing Jeff out, and, you know, and he kept up pulling me over and saying, go further. And I thought I was going pretty far, and it was like, go further, go further. And this was like, and actually, Larry Charles was directing that episode. This was several takes, and finally, uh, Larry David pulls me over, and he goes, I want you to make fun of Jeff's fat. And I said, Larry, I don't want to do that. I don't like to make fun of people's physical, you know, problems. And Jeff has an eating issue. And that's mean. And I don't want to do this. He's like, just go for it. Just go for it. He knows you're only kidding. He knows you're acting. Just do it. So I did it. And that was the first time I called him a fat fuck, I think. 
You know, and then like the genie was out of the bottle, <laughs> and you know the rest is uh, her story. You're not giving your fucking kidney. What if one of your kids needs a kidney one day? You're gonna give a kidney to Richard Lewis? No, 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 no. You give it to him. I might not be the match, Larry. He needs his kidney number one, number two. He's a fat fuck. He can't even survive the surgery. You're healthy and thin. You're healthy and thin. You're giving the kidney. End of discussion. Moot point. Director David Steinberg. Well, Susie is so gifted. And she's so willing to reveal any negative version of herself. You know, Susie's not someone who says fuck a lot in real life, but on camera, it's a symphony of fuck a lot when she's there. <laughs> right. Ah, go fuck yourself. It never, ever does it make me laugh. Working with Susie is unbelievable because she gets everything so fast and she gets the whole thing. She, the, the truth of it is, if you're an actor that is comfortable with your scene and you're not connected to what that show is about, you're not going to fulfill what we need from you. You have to know the whole thing and then work your nuances out as a result of how that your scene would play then. Susie's an expert at that. You know, she makes fuck sound like, hi, how are you? You know, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's one of her favorite words, even in real life. We never discussed the character. We had kind of, oh, I would call it a dialogue of the unconscious, you know, where I kind of got what he wanted and gave it to him, and he got what I was doing and wrote more towards what I was doing. And it was just this amazing collaboration that we've had all these years that we've never actually spoken about. Can we start with when you first got exposed to Curb Your Enthusiasm and how? I like you said got exposed because it is a little bit like an illness. <laughs> um, so that's good. That's a good start. Cheers, Becker. Fargo, CSI, and others are just part of the reason why Ted Danson is considered one of the most successful television actors of the past 25 years. The guy knows how to pick them. So why on earth would he agree to go before the cameras on a show he knew little about, particularly because this show didn't have what he had long considered most essential for success, a good script? Mary, my wife Mary Steenbridge and I met Larry on Martha's Vineyard. I think they were renting a home there, and... He had just shot the pilot, and he showed a group of us, you know, uh, in this little rental house halfway up the attic stairs because it got the best reception or something, and we were all kind of crowded around this kind of little hot room, some of us on stairs, and looked at the pilot. And I'm overjoyed to tell you that a couple of people fell asleep. That just tickles me. <laughs> and But it was amazing. You know, it was clearly like, wait, what is this? And I have to admit, this is the funny part, because let me throw in that, you know, Larry David kind of changed my career for the better. Uh, so I am forever in his debt, and Mary and I adore him. But I watched it going, oh, Lord, I don't know about this. <laughs> you know, well, he seems like such a nice guy. Let's be supportive and tell him that we'd love to be on it anytime he needs us to play ourselves or whatever. And that'll never happen, because the show sucks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's become, you know, this phenomenon worldwide that changed my life. So, but my first reaction was, oh boy, my poor new friend. So that's how we kind of got exposed. And then, lo and behold, he did call us. And it really changed things for me. I'll speak for myself. So, obvious question, where did Curb Your Enthusiasm come from? How did you settle on that for the title? I think 
maybe I read something and the phrase popped out. I was in the mode at that point of uh, thinking about titles, so my antennas were up. And then I came across that phrase in a book. I remember um, watching the first episode and being so struck by your choice of music. Could you talk a little bit about that and creating that feeling from the music? Two years earlier, I'd heard a uh, bank commercial. I heard this music, and I only saw the commercial once. It was off the air very quickly, but after I saw it, I came into the office the next day, and I told my assistant there was this bank commercial. I told her what the bank was. I said, there's this music that I love. See if you can find out what it was. And she did some research, got the name of the music. I said, well, hold on to that. I think I'm going to use that one day. And then two years later. And what was it about it that appealed to you? There was something circusy about it. It's the kind of music that I like to get away with things comedically. And sometimes music can help in that regard. It tells the audience, don't take this seriously. This is, this is funny. So a lot of the music that we use on the show is designed with that purpose in mind. A lot of the actors on Curb were designed with that same purpose in mind. When the series began, the powers that were, notably Larry David, would have been entirely within their authority to recast roles, including that of Larry's wife. But there was in fact no talk of replacing Cheryl Hines, which was totally fine with her. Totally. I felt like it was a dream come true. I kept waiting for, you know, something to happen where it doesn't work out or doesn't turn out. Or I, I think one of the most challenging things about being an actor is you don't have control over projects or situations. And I see a lot of my friends and peers who are replaced on a project or you know, things just don't work out and they go a different way and it happens all the time. So you kind of always have to brace yourself for that as an actor. So I, I felt like, you know, it'll be a small miracle if this actually happens. And then it happens. So I got so lucky. I was very grateful, very grateful. At the beginning of the first season, if you had gone to a dinner party or just out to dinner one night with your friends and they say, so you're doing this series, you know, what do you think is going to happen with it? What were you thinking in your head? Did you feel like at the beginning that it was going to be... No. <laughs> no. Once again, Susie Essman. It was such this... First of all, I was like getting day scale. You know, I was hired by the day. I wasn't a regular. I was just hired, you know, for whatever episodes I got paid for it. I was getting scale <laughs> for like the first three seasons, I think. Wow. Yeah. And it was just this slapdash operation. You know, we had no budget. We had no nothing. We didn't have the first few seasons. We didn't have trailers. We didn't have a makeup trailer. Uh, we didn't have our own dressing room trailers. We all just were like, you know, running around whatever house we were in, finding a bathroom and changing and getting makeup done in the half dark and, you know, that kind of stuff. It was such a low budget operation. And then finally, I think season three or four, we got one trailer that we all shared. That all the actors, Cheryl, Larry, Jeff, me, we all shared the one trailer together. <laughs> and then I think after a say, whatever it was, came in and said we had to get trailers. But we kind of liked it when it was like that. It was just this kind of, it was really this, uh, you know, I've got a barn, let's put on a show kind of feeling. But you had no idea that it was going to no, be none. a hit. And it wasn't until I would say season three, anecdotally, that I would see people stopping me on the street. You two sickos! took the head for God knows what reason, some voodoo shit you're doing. Where is it? Stop scratching your balls and tell me where it is. All right, just get me the fucking head, all right? 
get me the fucking head, all right? Both of you, because I've had it, you four-eyed fuck, and you fat piece of shit. Get me the head! Feel free to argue with me about the following. It seems that of all the relationships in Curb Your Enthusiasm, your relationship with Larry is closer to reality than virtually all the others. I mean, Susie Essman talked about kind of creating her character, and Cheryl talked about creating her character kind of different than they are. But because you and Larry have such a, an amazing history together, it just seems like you guys are very raw with each other on the show. The thing about it, and I spoke to I had dinner with Larry a night ago, two nights ago, and and I, I'm a real psychological hound, you know. I mean, I've been in and out of therapy for over 40 years. He's not a therapy guy. He tried it, and he, he ran out screaming once from a group therapy session I got him into. We had to chase him down First Avenue and begged him to come back, but he hid in a phone booth. We, we wouldn't come out. But I love him. We really respect one another, and we would do anything for each other. However... His personality is so different than mine in, in that, you know, he's like isolated, to me at least, his feelings, and I, I share everything. So I saw so there was some riffs on the show where I say, you have no empathy, you're not sympathetic, you couldn't care less, and he just listens and he starts smiling, and then, he, you know, he'll come back with something brilliant, they're like, yeah, so what if I am, you know, that kind of thing, you know. <laughs> So my wife says, you're really telling Larry, like, as if you're having, I said, well, that's what it is. It's like we're ourselves. And, of course, there's some hyperbole. And, of course, we want to be funny. And I'm a fan of the show. It's, it's a remarkable show. However, if they would have filmed our dinner, he would have had a great three or four minutes for the show because it would have worked for the exposition. Because no other people on the cast can, you know, claim that, and it's not their fault. It's just that we just have this incredible history from day one, literally. Curb director, Bob Whitey. In the original special, the one-hour special, people forget this, and then it's kind of a shock if they go back and look at it, is that Larry and Cheryl have kids in the special. We never see them, but they're referenced a few times. You know, the kids, oh, where are the kids? Oh, they're at my mom's place or whatever. So when we were going to do the series, I was asking Larry well in advance, are you going to have kids on the show? Because if so, we're going to have to cast kids, and you know they can only work for so many hours. And it's kind of a pain, but you know you had kids on the special. I suppose we will have them in the series. Says, I don't know. Let me think about it. He kept putting it off. Let me think about it. Let me think about it. And then we were, we were getting ready to shoot the first episode. And the first scene takes place in Larry's house. And back then we shot all the scenes in sequential order as they appeared in the final show. So I remember asking Larry, look, we're shooting tomorrow. We better figure out this kid's thing. And he said, well, I don't know. Uh, maybe they're at camp or something. Can't we delay it a little bit? I said, well, you know, you're cutting it awfully close. So the next day, we're literally on the set getting ready to shoot. And I said to Larry, look, we've got to decide about the kids. Do you have kids? We're about to shoot the first scene. Larry said, well, why can't we just assume they're somewhere else? And I said, because we're shooting in the kitchen. And if you have kids, there's going to be kid stuff on the refrigerator door. You're going to have drawings. They're going to be held up with those dopey little magnets of letters from the alphabet or whatever. So it's now become a question of set decoration. You know, this is going to look like a very different set if you have kids versus you don't have kids. So I said, you really need to make a decision. Larry thought about it and sort of scratched his chin and said, uh, 
uh, no, no, we don't have kids. And that's how that decision was made. <laughs> it was about whether or not we put something on the refrigerator that led to them not having kids on the show. Try pitching this to one of the three broadcast networks. The creator and star has never starred in a TV series before. There will be no scripts in the usual sense. The first storyline features an inquiry into whether the star is unintentionally sporting an erection or his pants are simply wickedly giving that impression from the way they inflate in front when he sits down. Oh, and by the way, that male lead will also be the show's creator and showrunner and prefers there be no, as in zero, interference neither from the front office or from the back office either. After you get all that out, sit patiently by your phone and wait for their response. You may want to have on hand copies of Remembrances of Things Past, Ulysses, and Infinite Jest at the ready. That call will probably never come. But in the late 90s, HBO wanted to distinguish itself in the ever-expanding media marketplace, and Creative Freedom was one of the biggest banners they waved to lure the very best talent to their network. A lot of the reason the show was so good is just pure and simple Larry's genius. But a lot of it was also HBO really leaving us alone. I mean... HBO being smart enough to know that they're not going to start to give Larry notes about how to make a show funny because Larry would laugh at them and, and walk away and say, well, if you guys know how to make a funny show, you go ahead and make one, make it without me. So they really left us alone. We never could have gotten away with that on any sort of uh, network show. I remember friends of mine who were running very successful network comedies. Once Curb came on the air and was known, people would ask me about how we worked and what the relationship was with HBO. And I'd say, oh, they totally leave us alone. They're not on set. They don't give us notes. They have no involvement in casting. They're not in the editing room. They don't see cuts. And these friends of mine who ran network shows would just start to drool at the prospect of having the network leave them alone because that's not how it works in the real world. Gavin Pallone was Larry David's former agent and manager. We were producing the show at such a low number in the beginning, and that was something that I pushed very hard for because I wanted Larry to have that kind of control, and I knew that it would never be good, nor would he be satisfied if he didn't. And then secondly, because you know Chris Albrecht also is a very unique executive, and not only in this particular instance, but in others that I had with him when he was at HBO, he is a person who recognizes talent and understands that in most cases, a lighter hand, or in many cases, especially one with Larry, will be better and more effective for what he wants, which is a great show, than a heavier hand. Chris doesn't feel like he has to control everything, that he's confident enough in his choices about what to go forward with, that he can back off and allow those people to have space, is a large part of why Curb Your Enthusiasm is so successful. Former HBO chief Chris Albrecht. We were about giving people freedom. I mean, that was one of our calling cards. It was one of the reasons why he came to work at HBO. We certainly weren't about stars in our shows. We didn't have, you know, it wasn't how we built our stuff. People, stars didn't want to come to work at HBO. I'm not talking about comedy stars. I'm talking about TV stars. You know, Larry's attitude, which I kind of shared, Larry was always flummoxed by the idea of having to do promotion. His actual attitude is, well, why promote it? Why tell people to watch it? Just put it on the air, and if they find it, they find it. And if they don't, they don't. Who cares? But, you know, you don't need ratings. You don't have sponsors. So just let's be under the radar and just let the show go out and not talk about it, not review it or anything. And he really couldn't understand why HBO wanted to get word out about this before it aired. Larry was the, you know, the 800-pound gorilla whom they weren't going to mess with. You know, the guy created Seinfeld. He co-created Seinfeld. 
no HBO executive is going to try to tell them what to do. And also, if they did, Larry would just either laugh at them or walk away and say, you know what, you do it. You know how to make such a funny show, you do it. He didn't need it. It was The only reason we did the series was it was going to be fun. It was a lark. Larry didn't need it. Could have walked away at any time. And in fact, I was telling you before that Larry said, if, you know, at the end of the day, this idea stinks, we won't do the special. The other part of that was he had it worked out with HBO that if he did the thing and finished it and then looked at the finished product and didn't like it, he would pay them back for their investment. So HBO wasn't going to try to give Larry notes. Mr. Irving Schwimmer, please leave a message at the tone. Oh, hi, Mr. Schwimmer. Uh, this is Larry David. I just want to say... You fucking asshole! What's your fucking problem, you prick? Jesus! What the hell is wrong with you? What the fuck do you think you're talking to? I remember there was one time somewhere in there, maybe season two or three where they said, you know, let's try to crack down on this a little bit. I guess because they're network executives and they're bored and they figure they have to do something. But it was more like showing up to make sure that we were sort of shooting this as expeditiously as possible so we wouldn't have, you know, any more days with overtime or, you know, pickups or anything like that. So somebody showed up on set and watched us for the day. And then I think at the end of the day, tried to corral Larry and give him a few ideas. And Larry just looked at him and said... Um, yeah, good this luck conversation is not going to take place. What are, you, what, are you, what are you doing? What are you, what are you, what are you, what are you thinking about? And the guy just sort of, you know, put his tail between his legs and walked away, and that was the end of it. That was the one time I remember HBO trying to act like a network. You know, Chris knew me back from the improv, and I think it was just a tacit agreement that they weren't going to be hands-on. I couldn't have done it if they were. There'd be no reason to. But they've been great from day one. Anything we wanted, they were behind the show. I couldn't imagine working for better people than the people I've worked for at HBO. So there really wasn't a time when they said, we don't like this or you don't think, we don't think you should do this? No, please, no. Well, that is remarkable. I, I've never gotten one note. What about the characters and their development? You know, in the first episode, Susie is, well, now that we know her, kind of like a Porsche going 40 miles an hour. She's somewhat muted. Did you let each of them kind of develop in their own way? Or was this something that you kind of thought about before each episode or discussed with you know them. it was it's the same thing in Seinfeld characters evolve and you sort of get a feeling of a little more of what they're like and, and how you want to um, proceed it's just something that happens organically you don't really think about too much and when it's somebody like Richard Lewis you kind of already know it before it happens anyway right because you know him so well right exactly we've had the same relationship for four years so were there times when given you you know him so well that you could tweak him in a certain way to elicit a, a certain reaction? Yeah, I, I like to, uh, <laughs> you know, we have an odd relationship, it's the same relationship we have off screen. I, uh, I tease him a lot and uh, it seems to work, but he's a um, great comedian, fantastic guy, great friend. I love the dynamic and you have it right from the beginning where he always feels like, you know, this is the one. And because you know his history and you remember it, you're kind of like, okay, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Our personal relationship comes in very handy because that's what I'm referring to when I'm talking to him on the show. Right. He's got like all this enthusiasm for the woman du jour, and you're like, I think I've heard that before. Yeah, that's exactly right, Jim. 
You fucking idiot. What? You did this. You're responsible for this. You looked at her mole with a goddamn telescope like Galileo jerking off from 40 feet away. I had breast vision. I told you. Yeah, because of you, I'm going to lose this beautiful woman with that figure, with those breasts. I thought you didn't care about how big her breasts were. All right, I lied. What am I supposed to do now? Go from a double D to what did she... What's half a double D? B plus? No, B minus. B minus is closer to the D. Yes. What's closer to the D, the minus or the plus? I don't give a shit, quite frankly. This is not algebra. I know this is my life. Life is short. How dare she? How dare she? Yeah. What gives her the right? It's self-centered. It really is. It is selfish. Parachute sheets are the softest and most comfortable sheets you'll ever own. And why is that? Well, simply put, it's because they're made from the very best fabrics. Parachute sheets have a clean, minimalistic style that come in neutral colors, so they work perfect in any bedroom. And the best part of Parachute is that their sheets get softer with time. Plus, if you're a person who wants to make an impact on the world, and frankly, who doesn't, then Parachute is the company for you. They've partnered with the United Nations Foundation to donate malaria prevention bed nets, and they've already donated 16,000 so far. Here's another great part of the story. Parachute offers a 60-night trial, so if you don't love your sheets, you just send them back, no questions asked. Now, if you're wondering how that makes a positive impact on the world, well, all returns are donated to Habitat for Humanity. And that's a great cause. So don't wait. Visit ParachuteHome.com Origins for free shipping and returns. Again, that's ParachuteHome.com Origins for free shipping and returns. It doesn't get any easier. It's time to get better sleep with Parachute. There's a lot that goes into being a successful company. You need a vision and a purpose, and you need a product that solves customers' needs. Perhaps most importantly, you need to believe in what you're creating. Now, to understand Squarespace's success, you need to understand six core principles. Be your own customer. Squarespace is built using Squarespace. Their entire business relies on the same platform and tools that their customers use. Two, empower people to create great things. Three, design is not a luxury. Squarespace strives for excellence in design, and they are constantly challenging themselves to reach new levels of success. Four, good work takes time. Squarespace only releases products when they've met only the highest of standards. Five, optimize towards ideals. Squarespace lets its values and ideals guide their corporate decision-making process. Finally, simplify. Now, what does all this add up to? It means Squarespace's award-winning templates are the most beautiful way to present your ideas online. Go ahead, take the leap. Create a beautiful website with Squarespace's all-in-one platform. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade, and Squarespace provides award-winning 24-7 customer support. Use offer code ORIGINS for 10% off your first purchase of a website and domain and make your next move with Squarespace. Put the pie down. I'm not taking a bite. I don't want a bite. Take this fucking piece of pie and get it out of my face. Put the fucking pie down. Don't put that pie down. Do not put that pie down. God damn it. You know something? I heard that Rosie O'Donnell beat the crap out of you. Oh, really? Yeah, that's, that's bullshit. No, it ain't yeah, bullshit. Yeah, that is bullshit. Rosie beat bullshit. the crap out of you. Bullshit. You big sissy. Yeah, she, big she's saying sissy. that? Is that what she's saying? Get this thing away from me. Thank you very much, Rosie O'Donnell. That's bullshit, by the way. She got me down. Yeah, okay, I admit that. She got me down. And I could have I could have reversed it, but it was stopped. People interfered. That's all. That's the only thing that happened. How dare you go around spreading that rumor? Why are you fighting women? She started it. Before he directed the outrageous mockumentary Borat, served as an executive producer on Entourage, 
and wrote or was otherwise involved in some 80 episodes of Seinfeld, Larry Charles was yet another of Larry David's funny friends dating back to the 70s. Fortunately for us, this story needs another Larry with a first name for a last name, just to bounce things out. I was a 22-year-old kid who didn't know how to get into show business, quit NYU film school, went out to California. I really didn't know how to start, and I had always read that Woody Allen used to write freelance jokes and sell them for like 10 bucks a piece to various people. And uh, I thought, you know, me, I could do that, I could write jokes. And so I was a parking valet in Los Angeles, and when I'd get off from work, I would have these jokes, and this is before computers, and I'd still write longhand as does Larry. And I would write out jokes, a page of handwritten jokes, <laughs> and I would go stand in front of the comedy store, which happened to be a very fertile time for the comedy store. So um, this comedian started buying my material, a guy named Daryl Igus. And to make a long story short, he, like a year later or so, got a job on his TV show Fridays. And he recommended me to the show. And I, I actually hitchhiked to the interview, also with handwritten material, came into the meeting. I was very brash in the meeting because I just couldn't imagine I was going to get the job. And at the end, I said, look, I don't really care if I get this job. What I care about is don't fuck me over, you know? Just let me know one way or the other if I have a job. Don't string it out. Don't play me. Just let me know the truth. I can handle it. So they said, okay. And, I, and when I got back, I got a phone call from Jack Burns saying I have good news and bad news. The good news is I'm getting back to you quickly. The bad news is you're hired. So I got hired onto that show, and Larry David was one of the actor writers on that show, along with Michael Richards and a bunch of other very, very talented, very nice people. But Larry and I were from the same neighborhood. He was about 10 years older than me, and he immediately just took me under his wing. We were from the same neighborhood, had similar sensibilities in many ways, and he became kind of like an older brother mentor figure to me from the very beginning. I mean, we had talked over the years, you know, about his desires and his frustrations with Seinfeld, even though he was very happy with it. I think he, he sort of had a kind of a vision of himself as a performer. He had been a great cult comedian back in New York and even in Los Angeles. And I think he felt that he never really fully fulfilled that ambition. So I think he wanted to do it in a kind of a more controlled atmosphere, like a more theater atmosphere where people came to see him. And I think after Seinfeld, he felt he might have that form now. He might have the venue to be able to control the uh, circumstances so people were coming to see him. And, uh, and then, I guess, out of that idea, filming that, filming that odyssey, came the idea for the show. It turns out directing and editing Curb is a bit more complex than directing your standard sitcom. Once we started to put together the outline for the series, it was a little longer. I think for season one, those episode outlines were maybe five pages with, you know, pretty wide margins. And, you know, we really sort of stuck to the same principles as we did for the special. I mean, those rules sort of were relaxed over time. I think even before the end of the first episode, there were a couple of sequences that we did that were more stylistic. For the special, it was single camera. And then there was sort of this last minute idea of let's get a second camera just so we can always have a camera on Larry and we won't miss anything. So we realized once we started doing the series that we should always have two cameras. And yeah, the idea was, as far as I was concerned, was to almost always have a camera on Larry. And then the second camera would either get a, you know, some sort of a master or, you know, if it was a dialogue between him and Susie or Jeff or whatever, that the second camera would get them. But 
yeah, the key was not to miss anything that you weren't going to be able to repeat again and, and have it still have the same feel of spontaneity. Because if something happened that was unexpected and it got a laugh, you knew that if you, you know, tried to hit it again the same way, you weren't quite going to capture the magic of the first one. It's just material. Yeah, I know, but but really, look at these pants. I've seen pants bunch up. I have before, never yes. seen a bunch up like this in my life. I this have. is like a five-inch bunch up I got here. Well, you don't have to play with it. Is it a bad thing? <laughs> Maybe it's not such a bad thing, you know. Oh, because you is want it, people to think that I don't you know. constantly is have an a, erection. Is it a bad thing for men to walk around like <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah, huh? it is. I do remember this: is when the first episode of season one, one the pants tent, when that aired. I got a message on a machine the next day from a friend of mine, somebody I've known since junior high school, who said, I caught this show on HBO the other night. I forget the name of it, but it would be right up your alley. It's exactly your sense of humor. In this first episode, this guy's got his pants are making like a thing. It looks like an erection. Anyway, you should see it. If they repeat it, you should watch it. And I called him up and I said, yeah, I know something about that show. I produced it and directed it. Part of the brilliance of Seinfeld was the almost magical way that disparate storylines associated with each character would run parallel for a while and then join forces for ridiculous and hilarious denouements. For instance, George was parking his car in a cheap lot that pimp and hookers frequented. Kramer was involved in restoring an old theater to modern glory. Elaine rhapsodized about a stupid walking stick for the Jay Peterman catalog. And Susan just happened to have a wigmaster friend visiting. Next thing you know, Kramer is walking down the street all pimped out. Keen plotting of story points became classic Larry David inventiveness. True, there were no scripts per se in Curb, but Larry, either alone or with his writer-producer cohorts, would spend hours, weeks, and months putting together a detailed narrative for each Curb episode that would then fit into a larger mosaic for a given season's arc. When we were doing season one, this was not a typical sort of network show where everything is planned in advance. Once again, Bob Whitey. Listen, I've made three cameos in the show two of them in which I had speaking roles. And that was all because on the day we were shooting, and then we'd come up with a bit for Larry to do, and Larry would say something like, ah, you know what would be great? Is if somebody were walking down the street, and if I gave them my phone and asked them to call Lewis's house because I don't want to talk to his girlfriend. But, you know, it wasn't something that we had cast because we didn't think of it until, you know, on the day, on the spot. So Larry would say to me, well, you do it. Just walk down and, and you, you and I can do it. So that's why I've appeared in this show three times. So this is pretty atypical as far as having everything planned in advance. And I remember, you know, we sort of had our first scene coming up with Larry driving in a car. So there was talk about what kind of car he would drive. I think Larry at the time drove a Lexus, if I'm not mistaken. But I remember suggesting that we get a... Um, a convertible, because it would be easier to shoot in, because, you know, to bring cameras and lights inside a car, and sometimes two cameras, plus a director and a monitor, you know, it was impossible. I thought if we had a convertible, you know, at least, you know, have things popping out the top and all that. I remember Larry just disposing of that idea very quickly. He said, what, did I look like the kind of schmuck who would drive around in a convertible? I wouldn't drive a convertible. It's like, okay, well, there goes that. So after season one, I remember I was with Larry, and he said, hey, let's go down to the Toyota dealership. I'm going to look at this new car they have, and it's a hybrid. It's like part electric, part you know, combustion engine. Gets really good mileage. I said, okay. So we went down to the Toyota dealership, and we looked at this car. It was called a Prius, and you hadn't seen any of these out and about yet. I mean, it was brand new, and somehow it must have been through Larry's wife, who's a big environmentalist. He was tipped off about these cars. So we went and looked at it. 
I remember the guy opened up the hood, and we looked inside, and I just said, well, there's the future. We're looking at the future. I mean, why not? This makes perfect sense. So Larry bought a Prius, you know, which is a pretty small car. And then I was horrified when he announced that he wanted to use the Prius for his car on the show, meaning that now we had to put lights and cameras and people in the back seat of this tiny little car, which was not fun, but we did it. And um, I remember people watching season two of the series and saying, what the hell kind of car is that? What is he driving? And the people at the Toyota dealership told us that a lot of people were coming in saying they wanted to look at the Larry David car <laughs> in the Prius. And soon after that, you saw Priuses all over. So I've, I've always thought that the show played a little bit of a part in uh, putting Prius on the map. You know what? I think I figured this shit out. She was getting her rocks off in this damn chair. Look at me. This really? shit is a moving dildo. You mean like a horse? This chair is a fuck machine. Man cannot compete with machinery. No wonder why she didn't come upstairs. You're damn right. She was coming downstairs. Get it? She was coming downstairs. Coming downstairs. Yes, get I got it. Whatever the fuck you do, you keep her out of this damn car. You know what this car is? This car is the other fucking man. She is cheating on you with this fucking chair. These days, you can get practically everything on demand, right? Like our podcast. You can listen whenever you want, whenever it's convenient for you. So why are you still going to the post office, waiting online and dealing with their limited hours when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com? You know that feeling you get when you get things done with just a click of your mouse? It can't get more convenient than that, thanks to Stamps.com. Look, anything you can do at the post office, you can now do right from your home with Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes. So you can get postage whenever you need it, 24-7. Right now, for our listeners, sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code ORIGINS for this special offer. A four-week trial including postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Within minutes, you'll be printing postage right from your desk. Go to Stamps.com and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in ORIGINS. Don't forget, it's the little microphone at the top of the screen. That's stamps.com. Enter Origins. You'll never have to go to the post office again. Do you respect wood, Susie? Uh, yes, I do respect wood. Why? You've demonstrated a consistent lack of respect for what is I say. Oh, I don't know what you're getting at. I don't know what this is about. I'll tell you what I'm getting at. I see a ring stain on your table. Yeah. I remember you standing over Julia's antique table with a drink. Yeah. Okay? Therefore... I'm putting two and two together. I think you left that ring stain on Julia's table. So don't tell me you respect wood. Oh, I respect wood, Larry. I respect wood so much that if I had a piece of wood in my hand right now, I'd beat the shit out of you with it, okay? Mm. Get the fuck out of here, all right? Okay. Tell me, was there a moment in the first season, though, where... It was such a great moment for you that you thought, okay, this is why it's going to be successful. Something that kind of stuck in your mind above other yeah. things that you were seeing. I was on the set a lot of the days or most of the days in the first season. And I can't even remember what episode it is now, but the one where they were in like a group therapy session with Lorraine Newman. And I just thought I was sitting there watching that and doing everything I could not to laugh on the set and just thinking, wow, this show is going to be, you know, a classic that's remembered forever. It's not that collaborative in a sense because it all really comes forth from his mind. I mean, it's really Larry's show. 
more than any other show is anybody's show, more than Seinfeld was Larry's show. And so, you know, it's all about his process and what he wants to do. I was just there to be of support to Larry whenever I could, and when I wasn't, I was just a fan. There's no way I could have done career enthusiasm without a background in improv, because... You know, Larry writes a story outline for the episodes, but even the first three seasons, he never even showed me the story outlines. So I never knew what the show was about or what was going to happen next. And I mean, still, I don't know what they shoot in other scenes until I watch the show. Or, you know, in my scenes with Larry, whatever Larry tells me. The thing that they teach you in improv is to be comfortable in the space of not knowing what's going to happen and not controlling where the scene is going to go. Oh, titmouse! What? I just saw a titmouse. A titmouse? A mouse. Titmouse, mouse. Why do you call it a titmouse? This is what you call it, titmouse. Who calls it that? A lot of people call it that. Oh, my God. What? You are obsessed with tits. You're feeling up somebody's tits. You're talking to kids about tits. Talking to kids? Yeah. What you, the kid said, I love tits. That's what the kid said to me. What Why am I supposed to do? are you talking to little boys about tits? He whispered it to me. It was part of the game. So I spent years doing improv and just being comfortable with the unknown, basically. And what you learn as an improviser is if you listen to what your scene partner is saying, you'll have all the answers. So as long as you're listening there's never going to be an issue. For me, you know, I was comfortable in that space. But I do know a lot of actors who have a hard time with it because it kind of goes against what you learn as an actor in a lot of classes. They teach you that everything's in the script, that all of your answers are in the script because you know what other characters say about you. You know even the punctuation in your sentences. So it's all there in the script. You have to let go of it. But what you can do as an actor is think about who your character is and your character's attitude and your character's perspective because that's really important, you know, as you do an improvised show. If you don't have a good idea of who your character is, then it would be very difficult. In the beginning, there was a curb policy for celebrities appearing on the show that they could only play themselves. But that was jettisoned for actor Ed Asner of Mary Tyler Moore fame. Yeah, he was sort of the Jackie Robinson of actors, <laughs> not playing themselves on her. So he was the first. But yes, that, that was the rule. Now, you know, in season one, early on in the, in the season, Ted Danson and Mary Steenburgen played themselves, of course. And that was okay. That was all about just trying to maintain verisimilitude to make this feel you know, like a documentary, like a day in the life of Larry David. But that was the rule for a while. And, um, you know, it's funny, the, season one, there were a couple times where we tried to get actors to do cameos playing themselves. And we could not get anybody to come on the show because nobody knew what it was. People were afraid of the improv element. And um, they were nervous about doing it. So we had an episode where uh, Larry goes into a deli, and there's a guy working at the deli who Larry used to know, who used to be a writer, and now he's fallen on hard times. We auditioned actors for The Father, and it must have been our casting director who said, what about Ed Asner? And we thought, well, you know, we don't really use known actors playing other people, but we said, well, what the hell, have him come in and audition. And he did a great audition. We said, all right, so 
Ed Asner is going to play somebody other than himself. And that was the first. We, we didn't do a lot of that on Curb, at least not when I was there for the first five seasons, but we did some. And now it's really done more and more. Again, a lot of it is just because there are a lot of known actors who really want to do the show. And if they're great for the part, you know, they get hired regardless of whether or not people know who they are. I'm a little puzzled. Uh, what's this outfit? Is it a Halloween party or what is it? Oh, <laughs> no, it's, it's Casual Friday. Casual Friday, what does that mean? That means we just dress like we would at home. But you're not at home. No, but it's just Casual Friday. So. Yeah, I know. You told me that already. What do you do on Casual Friday? Well, we just uh, come into our work, but we dress casually. I don't like it. Well, it's just one day of the week. I don't give a damn if it's uh, half a day a week. I don't like it. I'm here to change my will. A lot of money is involved. It's very important to me. Oh, we wouldn't treat you casually. Then why the hell you dress that it's way? Just... I want you to be on cutting edge, man, whenever you're handling my business. This is cutting edge. I don't need this crap. You look like a fucking cowboy. The question I most wanted to ask Susie Essman was how did she manage to make someone so opinionated and so vulgar such a lovable character? She's not just screaming and shouting over nothing. He steals her daughter's doll's head. Right. He gets her kid drunk and steals her dog. Right. He gets us kicked out of the country club. He doesn't take a house tour. He, you know, I mean, it's always provoked. She's, she doesn't, she's not just walking around. And usually, you know, you see Susie's fine, and then Larry does something to provoke her, and she's like, you know, zero to 60 right. in her acceleration. <laughs> but it's always provoked. That's wonderful. Beautiful. We're so happy here. It's a beautiful here, house. We sure are. So come on, I'll give you the tour. Oh, uh, you know what? That's okay. I, I, I get it. What do you mean? Well, you know, it's bedrooms, bathrooms. I, I, I get it. I see it. It's beautiful. It's great. You don't want a tour? Uh, you don't need to walk me around right, get the, the fuck out of my house, okay, Larry? Just get the fuck out right now. All right, fine. I'll take the house no, tour. No, no, I'm done. I'm over it. I'm turned off. Leave. Freak of fucking nature doesn't want a house tour. Susie, I'll take the house. No, no, no tour for you. You would be surprised how many people, men come up to me all the time and say to me, oh, my wife is exactly like you. And they say it like they're proud. Number one. <laughs> <laughs> and then women come up to me all the time and say, I'm exactly like you. So I find that amusing. <laughs> and they're proud of it. But I think what people are responding, especially women, what they're responding to in Susie, she's angry, but she's not vicious. You know, people think that it's the cursing and the, you know, the fucks and all that, but I don't think that's what it is. I think it's Susie's complete and total comfort with her anger. I think it's liberating for people to see. Curve was liberating in many ways. It never met a rule it didn't want to break, and many of its characters refused to behave according to an ever-expanding world of political correctness. In episode three, you'll find out just how far they were willing to go. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.